0: Welcome to Teleforum, a podcast of the Federalist Society's Practice Groups. I'm Dean Reuter, Vice President, General Counsel, and Director of Practice Groups at the Federalist Society. For exclusive access to live recordings of Practice Group Teleforum calls, become a Federalist Society member today at fedsoc.org. Welcome, everyone, to this Federalist Society virtual event. As this morning, kind of an off time, but I appreciate everyone joining and adjusting for this great event, um, mid March 17, 2022, St. Patrick's Day, uh, we're discussing Dobbs and the holdings of Roe and Casey. These are the abortion, uh, Dobbs is the abortion case currently before the Supreme Court and Roe and Casey are the most relevant precedents uh, that the court is contending with. I'm Nick Marr, Assistant Director of Practice Groups here at the Federalist Society. As always, please note that expressions of opinion on our call today are those of our experts. We have two great experts, distinguished law professors. Um, they've both been uh, commenting on this case recently. Um, and Professor Clays in particular, has a long law review article coming out, I believe, in the Georgetown Journal of Law and Public Policy on this topic. Um, it's my pleasure to introduce them both briefly, and then they'll take, take it from here. Uh, professor Eric Clays is a professor of law at Antonin Scalia Law School uh, of George Mason University. In Virginia. And Professor Richard Ray is the Joel B. Piasek Research Professor of Law at University of Virginia School of Law. Sorry if I mispronounced that, but they're both in Virginia. Um, so thank you both for joining us. Thank you all for joining us. Um, Professor Claes is going to outline his argument while we'll hear a response. Um, we'll be looking to you, the audience, towards the end of the program for your questions. So submit those through the chat either now or towards the end. Thank you much. Professor Claes, the floor is yours.
1: Thank you, Nick, for that introduction. And I want to thank the Federal Society for putting on this webinar. And I thank Richard also for commenting. He's very generous with his time to do so. And I look forward to hearing what he has to say. In this webinar, uh, Richard and I are going to talk about some principles of jurisprudence. And in particular, the principles of jurisprudence that help a judge in a new case know what precedential force an old case and passages from that old case have. And we're gonna talk about how those principles apply to Roe v. Wade, maybe also a case Planned Parenthood versus Casey and the case before the Supreme Court. Now that Nick mentioned, Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization. Roe, I think is understood as making it unconstitutional for a state to ban abortions before the point at which fetuses that are in pregnant women's wombs are viable. And the law under challenge in Dobbs bans abortions after 15 weeks and depending on how one understands the point of viability, that's somewhere between nine and 12 weeks before the viability threshold marked off in Roe. So if Roe has precedential force, then the law in Dobbs is unconstitutional. That doesn't stop the court from going in to follow, that doesn't require the court to follow Roe. The court could overrule Roe. And that doesn't stop the court from going in a different direction. But if Roe has precedential force, the court has to choose to overrule Roe or to say we are making really major modifications to the Roe regime. But some of people out there have have, uh, suggested that Roe might have precedential effect or precedential sweep a lot narrower than I just suggested it does. And uh, Richard has done some of this, he made some of these suggestions in blogging on his website and also an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal about the time that the Dobbs case was being argued at the Supreme Court. And maybe uh, Richard and I are academics. We like to think that what we write, what spills off our pens goes right into policy. But uh, Ch- Chief Justice Roberts has a lot more of a presidential force than either of us does. And during the oral argument at Dobbs, he tr- floated an idea that maybe Rose holding is a lot narrower than anybody has thought for the last uh, few decades. So uh, I want to just kind of lay out where I think Richard and I agree and disagree, and then I'll get more into my argument. I admire Richard's work on precedence uh, in scholarship. He has a fine uh, article in the Harvard Law Review about how to apply principles of precedence when a court is fractured and there's no one majority opinion that came out in the Harvard Law Review. And he has a recent article called Precedence as Permission in the Texas Law Review that uh, argues that courts should understand themselves as having relatively wide discretion to um, to, to, uh, uh, to go in directions different from the holdings of earlier cases. And I think in a lot of situations, maybe in most situations, I'm sympathetic to that, to that point of view. I think Richard and I both are, uh, embrace relatively minimalist understandings of judicial power. We want holdings to be small bore because we want future courts to be able to make their own marks in later cases. But it's hard to apply that kind of view when some earlier court has shot with a wide bore. And Roe versus Wade is that kind of case for reasons I'm going to explain. Roe's holding is a very sweeping holding and it, uh, it, 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 t- it touches on a lot of different kinds of conduct. And so the question that arises, if a court, like, it, like can a court go back and read a case with a, a wide holding that really have had a narrow holding all along? Or if a court or an old case is a wide holding, can a new court render narrow holdings on the basis of that wide holding? And those kinds of problems are lurking in the background of the Dobbs case. And so what I'm going to argue in my uh, forthcoming article and then these remarks, what I'm going to do is to explain why Roe indeed has a wide holding and how that holding creates challenges for the Supreme Court and Dobbs. Now, I'm not saying that the court uh, 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 has to follow Roe or that it has to overrule Roe. What I am saying is that if one applies, like, uh, like uh, if one, one applies relatively faithfully standard principles for understanding what a holding is, uh, one has to see that Roe has a wide holding, and then the, the court has to be honest what it's doing to that wide holding. And with that, then I am going to present my, the rest of my remarks with a PowerPoint. Give me just a moment to pull that up. This worked really, really well when I uh, here we are. Okay, so folks should see my screen now. and You should see a picture of a, a banana. We'll get to that in a minute. So this is the basis for my, uh, the, the, the title of the talk. And uh, my, a quick plug or promotional for the article, uh, the name of the article is Dobbs and the Holdings of Roe and Casey, forthcoming the Journal of Law and Public Policy. And the, the not, the, there's not the final versions online now, but a close to final versions on, available on the website go to the subfolder for volume 20, issue one. And the main claims in the article in this talk is that if one follows standard principles for restating precedents, Roe has three holdings, and the viability threshold is necessary to two of them. And those two holdings and the viability threshold itself were relied on in Planned Parenthood versus Casey, and at least another 11 Supreme Court cases. I can take questions on those 12 cases later in the question and answer period. I'm gonna focus this talk on Roe and Dobbs. And as long as Roe's holdings have presidential value, I think it likely that that, uh, the the law under challenge in the Dobbs case is unconstitutional on its face. And so uh, let me just set the stage real quickly to uh, talk about the uh, Dobbs case. So in 2018, Mississippi enacted an act called the Gestational Age Act. The act prohibits abortions in Mississippi after 15 weeks, subject to two exceptions. One of those is exception is to save the life or the health of a a pregnant woman. And the other uh, exception is it entitles a woman to choose abortion if the fetus she's carrying has fetal abnormalities. The district court and the Fifth Circuit both declared the act unconstitutional on its face. They followed what I've been calling this conventional wisdom that Roe makes it unconstitutional for states to ban abortion before viability. Chief Judge, oh, sorry, Judge Patrick Higginbotham is the fifth judge on the Fifth Circuit. He wrote the, uh, the lead opinion uh, for the Fifth Circuit. He said, and you can hear the sarcasm and, or the weariness in his voice when he says, in an unbroken line dating to Roe v. Wade, the Supreme Court's abortion cases have established and affirmed and reaffirmed a woman's right to choose an abortion before viability. But then that raises the question whether Roe really held that pregnant women have rights to choose abortions before viability. And you can ask lawyers what they think Roe held, and they associate Roe v. Wade with a trimester framework. And before the end of the first trimester in this framework, a state may not restrain the right to elect abortion on any ground. In the second trimester, uh, states may keep abortions safe, but they can, may, may not make abortions illegal. States may not restrain abortions, except incidentally, while they're trying to protect maternal health, uh, maternal life, and there are a couple of other uh, interests as well that we can talk about question and answer. But then in the third trimester, states may protect fetal life, and they may do so even by going so far as to prohibit abortions. So to know what Roe held, one might also ask what Roe said it held. And after Roe presented the trimester framework and summarized it, Roe said, this holding is consistent with the relative weights of the respective interests involved. So Roe called this trimester framework a holding of the case. Now, the holding might have been narrower, and uh, here is where Chief Justice Roberts come in. At oral argument in Dobbs, Chief Justice Roberts suggests that Roe entitles women only to a fair opportunity to get abortions and that Roe has nothing to do, Roe didn't hold anything about viability. In question to the counsel for the state of Mississippi, Scott Stewart, the Solicitor General for Mississippi, the Chief Justice said, I know what it Roe said about viability, but it, it, was viability an issue in the case? I know it wasn't briefed or argued. The suggestion was if, it, if, if viability was not briefed or argued, it was not part of the case's holding." Now, I think that there's problems in what the uh, the court uh, uh, said about Roe in the Roe case and what she wrote uh, the argument that Chief Justice Roberts was experimenting with an oral argument. And to explain why, I need to say some things about recessions and bananas. So uh, 45 years ago, we were suffering in another period where uh, there was uh, uh, there weren't as many jobs as we'd like and there was inflation. And Alfred Kahn, a famous economist, was the chairman of the Council of White Wage and Stability, Price Stability for President Carter. Kahn was, got criticized by Carter because Kahn would give speeches talking about the recessions that kept happening in the 70s. Carter w- was irritated by these mentions of recessions because for elected politicians such as himself, it was awkward to hear uh, one of his uh, uh, economists saying that the country was going through recessions. Kahn being a good bo- a good servant, a good employee, took his boss's order, stopped using the word recession. But Kahn, being an honest economist and a little bit sarcastic, kept talking about the phenomena of recessions and just called them bananas instead. And so he would say things like, between 1973 and 1975, we had the deepest banana we'd have in 35 years, and yet inflation dipped only very briefly. So why is that funny? Uh, It's funny because words have meanings, and sometimes people want to use a word to, uh, with an idiosyncratic meaning to do something that might be hard to rationalize or to justify if you use words in the more ordinary meanings. But if one does that, what Kant's pointing was pointing out, that's like, it, it seems a little ridiculous because one does violence to ordinary uh, words or meanings, and one is doing so with not the, for, for reasons that, that seem less than forthcoming, less than candid, One's trying to use words in a way, in a strange sense, to justify policies that might be hard to justify if you use words in the ordinary senses. Now, in Dobbs, nobody's trying to use the word banana to talk about holdings. But it could be that the Roe case and the theory that the chief justice experimented with in Dobbs, they, they, they are using the word holdings in a sense that are idiosyncratic or off from what lawyers understand to be holdings. And so the same concerns that we have with the banana episode might be coming back in Dobbs. So if one were to say that Roe didn't hold like held something different from what it held according to standard principles of, about jurisprudence with precedence, one might be using the word holding in a sense that's t- in tension with ordinary meanings, and one might be doing so to make a major change to abortion law, rights law uh, without saying that we're in effect overruling or we're re- re- drastically modifying what Rose said. So to understand those possibilities, we have to go back to principles of jurisprudence and ask, what is it that makes a proposition of law a holding? And again, the relevant uh, rules of law are principles of jurisprudence. And, f- and for the article I wrote, uh, I found very helpful and reliable a, 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 a textbook on jurisprudence by an English scholar John Salmon, uh, chapter eight of it. And in Salmon's account, Salmon here is restating common law principles for spotting a holding in an earlier case. And under these principles, you have to uh, to start with the judicial opinion and then the judgment of that, that the judicial opinion is written to support. And then uh, a judicial opinion is gonna have lots of different passages, different statements, different arguments. And those statements or arguments can be slotted into two groups. There are rationes decidendi, Latin for reasons for deciding. And then there are obiter dicta, that's Latin for statements made on the wayside, statements made offhand. And a proposition that's a ratio uh, decidendi has precedential effect or value, a dictum does not. And a proposition constitutes a ratio if it's necessary to the judgment. It supports the judgment. And a proposition constitutes a dictum if it's not necessary to the judgment. And again, I've relied on uh, uh, John Salmon's treatise, but the U.S. Supreme Court relies on the same basic distinction. It did so most famously in Cohen's versus Virginia in 1821 Supreme Court constitutional law case. The court refused to follow some passages from Marbury versus Madison, saying that basically that they were dicta. And then, in a recent case in which the court overruled in an earlier case in sovereign immunity, this case is Seven Over Tribe of Florida versus Florida. The court relied on the, the ratio dictum distinction to explain why it was bound to consider to either reaffirm or to overrule the case that was being asked for reconsideration. So to understand what the holding of Roe was, we need to understand what the, what judgment Roe indeed handed out. And the key Texas statute prohibited abortions throughout Texas at any stages of pregnancy. And the Roe case affirmed a, a judgment by the district court and the judgment of the district court issued a declaratory judgment. And the declaratory judgment declared the key statute and four companion statutes unconstitutional on their faces. I said in my overview remarks that Roe is a, whole, a case with a wide bore holding. Uh, a c- case shoots with a wide bore if it declares a statute unconstitutional on its face. That kind of holding is not just saying that the, 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 the law is unconstitutional as applied to to um, to, to the, the particular litigants, it applies more broadly. The court confirmed like uh, that it was issuing such a wide holding a judgment of facial invalidity with passages like this one here, the court said our conclusion that Article 1196 is unconstitutional means, of course, that the statutes as a unit must fall, must fall as a way of saying they're invalid on their faces, they're unconstitutional on their faces. And when a statute is declared unconstitutional on its face, it cannot be applied against anyone, even when it could be applied to conduct uh, to which it might be applied constitutionally. So then uh, we w- w- want to, so if we know that that's the judgment, so we want to know is the trimester framework, was that a holding of Roe? And so we might ask, is the basic trimester framework itself a holding of Roe? I don't think it is. I think it's a dictum uh, for, and we'll see why when we get to what I think Roe's main holdings are. And the fact that states that, 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 that uh, pregnant women are immune from uh, having their abortions interfered with in the first trimester, that's probably dictum. I could see an argument that maybe it's not, but uh, like the the, the the actual judgment the court handed down, the arguments in support of the judgment didn't make a lot of heavy weather. Didn't make heavy weather about the first trimester. And uh, the, the, what about the passages saying that uh, states may only uh, regulate during the second trimester to protect uh, maternal health? Like the, that, that the discussions about incidental health regulation. That's dicta in the Roe case. But the very next case in the Supreme Court reports and in the US reports, it, uh, that dictum became a holding in Doe versus Bolton. And then I'm happy to talk about that in questions. But then, the, like the, the, the idea that states may prohibit abortion in the third trimester, I think that's a holding of Roe because the, that holding contributed part of the court's, to part of the court's arguments when it, when it uh, uh, rendered one of the holdings, the holding specifically why the statute's challenge were unconstitutional or fake. face. So some parts of this framework do contribute to the judgment, but lots of other parts don't and are dicta. So to understand uh, what the whole, real holdings were, we have to ask what justified the declaratory judgment of facial unconstitutionality. And I think that you can always restate the propositions of law that are held in a case at higher levels of generality and more specific ones. I think that the, the propositions here can be restated as three broad propositions or seven specific propositions. And in these slides and in the, 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 the article, I call the broad propositions the holdings and the narrow ones ratios that or rationes that contribute to those holdings. And here are the three broad propositions, three holdings. First, the liberty term, the term liberty in the 14th Amendment due process clause entitles women, pregnant women, primitive fashion to choose abortion. And second, the key statute threatens due process or violates uh, due process rights in some applications. And it does so because it prohibits abortions before viability. And finally, the court, like that statute and the other companion statutes are all unconstitutional on on their faces. And they're unconstitutional because they pr- prohibit abortions before viability in a significant or substantial number of applications. So the first holding, I think is straightforward enough. It's familiar from Roe. A co- here are a couple of quotes from the case, making it clear. So this, this quote just uh, uh, it, it elaborates from the 14th Amendment due process clause of liberty, personal liberty uh, leads to the right of privacy and the right of privacy is broad enough to encompass a woman's decision whether or not to terminate pregnancy. And I call it a prima facie right because in other parts of the opinion, the court says that this right is not unqualified. And that holding is one proposition of law to it's, its own distinct ratio. So in the second holding, the court says, uh, uh, says that this prima facie, uh, the key, key Texas statute violates in some of its applications the, the uh, due process abortion right. Now to get there, the court says first, States can, in some instances, they have constitutional authority in some instances to restrict the right to abortion. So the right's not unqualified and must be considered against important state interests. But then the court says to just look at whether a state has justification to police abortion, it needs to look at the particular kind of statute and the possible justifications for it. And the court pigeonholes or classifies the key statute as a criminal abortion statute. It prohibits abortions. The court then concludes that the key statute is violative of the 14th Amendment because it prohibits abortions without pregnancy stage. But you might then ask, so why does that create constitutional problems? The problem is in what I call the fourth ratio or the viability ratio. If the states are interested in protecting fetal life after viability, it may go so far as to prescribe abortion during that period after viability. So that's, uh, the, the state interest in protecting fetal life turns on whether the fetus is viable. After viability, the state interest prevails before it does not. The viability is a necessary element of this holding. So then the third holding on facial and constitutionally relies on principles of whole overbreadth. And normally when a court considers a constitutional challenge to state law, it looks at how the law is applied to the challenger before it, and decides whether the law is constitutional as applied to that challenger and conduct. But for some rights, uh, the courts let challengers argue that the law shells constitutional co- conduct of third parties, parties not before it, and they then declare the laws unconstitutional on their faces. And the paradigm examples of these kinds of rights are free speech rights and then abortion rights. And Roe is the case that applies overbreadth principles to, to, to abortion rights. And when a, doc, when a uh, right is protected by overbreath, the most important inquiry courts make is to ask whether the law chills constitutionally protected conduct in applications that seem substantial in number in relation to the conduct the law could constitutionally prohibit or prevent. And the court finds in Roe that uh, overbreath, uh, abortion rights are protected by overbreath principles. When it says that the key statute sweeps in broadly, broadly is the term of art from overbreath. And the court concludes that the key statute and its companion provisions are unconstitutional. Why so? Because of the viability ratio again. The court says if the state's interested in protecting fetal life, uh, 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 actually, let me go to the next slide to explain this. The court could have been a lot clearer about what it was doing, but the court concludes the key statute, Article 1196, makes no distinction between abortion performed early in pregnancy and those performed later. The early performed abortions are the pre-viability abortions in overbread doctrine, the protected uh, abortions. The ones performed later are the post-viability abortions in overbreath doctrines, the ones that Texas could constitutionally prohibit. And so the court's saying in this passage that the number of unconstitutionally prohibited pre-viability abortions seems substantial in relation to the number of post-viability ones. And so the viability ratio is necessary again. So under the second holding of Dobbs, a law that prohibits abortions is unconstitutional in some of its likely applications prohibits abortions before viability. The Gestational Age uh, Act prohibits most abortions after uh, 15 weeks before viability. Under the third holding, a law that prohibits many, a substantial number of pre viability abortions is unconstitutional, unconstitutional on its face. And the Gestational Age Act is prohibiting a substantial number of abortions before the 27th week. For reasons I can explain in question and answer, Casey doesn't change things. Now, that doesn't, again, that doesn't mean that the court must follow Roe. The court could overrule Roe. But the court, I think, using these principles about holdings, must follow Roe, say that Roe is in conflict with, with a different result and overrule Roe, or say that Roe is in conflict with a different result and then announce it's making substantial modifications with Roe. And that's the main point of the article. And with that, we can take things over to Richard.
2: Uh, well, uh, thank you so much, uh, Eric, for involving me in this event and for uh, writing this illuminating paper on a very important topic. I was a lot from it. In fact, I made a few notes here based on your remarks today, which I think even uh, further uh, improve my understanding of these issues. So let me start by just describing my my orientation in this debate, because it's a little bit unusual, I think, among the voices that are, are participating in the Dobbs uh, controversy or public discussion, because my, my position is, is, is skeptical of a, of a big overruling, but I'm not taking that position because I have an absolutist view of sardecisis, as Eric, I think, very effectively summarized before. I have a more flexible view about what precedent does and can do and a, a limited view of how uh, constraining it can or should be compared to a lot of commentators. So then, so then you might ask, well, if I'm not taking a hardline view on stare decisis, why am I skeptical or critical of the prospect of a big overruling in Dops? And the reasons, uh, again, as Eric kind of indicated, has to do with process, deliberation, and especially gradualism. Uh, when the court makes really big changes, I think it should uh, generally, as a or as a rule, uh, do so incrementally. And in fact, that's what the Roberts court has done time and again. So I'm not really uh, saying anything contrary to actual practice here. Uh, in many contexts involving the First Amendment, including speech and religion, and involving voting rights and all kinds of other things, uh, the court has adopted a gradualist approach under uh, this Chief Justice, uh, including just last year in a in a recent case. So it's not an old phenomenon either. And I think the case for gradualism is extra strong in Dobbs uh, for at least at least three reasons. One is that the advocates themselves have taken very hardline views in this case. Possibly, I think uh, at least in part because of the political um, valence of, of the case. And so when you have the parties not representing the full gamut of options, I think that's a reason for the court to to be uh, extra hesitant. Uh, also, at the oral argument, the justices were very reasonably asking questions about uh, how the undue burden standard would apply. And the advocates really didn't have anything to say about that, except to point out that it wasn't uh, an issue on the facts uh, or in the briefing in their litigation, which which I think really indicates that there's a disconnect between what the justices want to know about and what the advocates in the case Uh, are prepared or interested or even able to give guidance on. And and third and finally, uh, it does seem like almost any view of psoriasis cares in some way about reliance, Now, the the reliance on past decisions. Now, how that figures in and, and the weight it's given varies a lot. And, and might not end up being huge. But if there's ever a time for reliance to matter, it would seem like a situation like this, where you have an individual right that's been, as, as Eric said, affirmed and reaffirmed uh, as it plays, it would seem like that interest would, would apply and, and dictate caution. And again, I'm not saying that means things can't be overruled when they generate reliance, but there, it's, a, it's a red flag for going big. I'll also add, uh, Eric made this point about worry about doing violence to ordinary meanings. And I think that is a, a real worry. And, and I, I think I am sensitive to that concern. On the other hand, part of the way that the Roberts Court has achieved gradualism time and time again is by creatively reading things in ways that critics might, might characterize negatively in the way that Eric did. Uh, and so I think that there's a more positive way to spin this idea of being creative with language uh, that indeed is common practice of the court so that's that's kind of where i'm coming from so given that background also as eric mentioned there's lots of different ways of achieving gradualism uh there could be for example uh, a dig or dismissal of this case because uh, it didn't pose a traditional basis for a grant and because the state has kind of uh at least altered its emphasis to put it mildly in the case by initially pitching the case as a limited one and then going very big uh after it got cert granted also, the court could hold the case and hear argument or reargument in a way that allows us to, to directly address this issue of the, the meaning of the undue burden standard. Uh, or the court could engage in a partial overruling of various types. That I think Eric expressly indicated that he is his argument here, at least, is not ruling out that possibility as long as the court candidly does that. And uh, I see him, I see him nodding here. And I'll just just to draw that out a little bit. So one possibility is the court could say that the existing framework is overruled to the extent it would preclude the state law from. Um, being implemented, uh, or another way to go is the court could say, "Well, existing case law is overruled to the extent that it it denies that the key principle in this whole area is uh, is undue burdens, and the undue burden standard is really the thing that gives rise to this prohibition on uh, broad bans on pre viability abortion." So either of those things, you know, they're on the table. I think, and and you know, uh, maybe maybe we would or wouldn't ultimately support them, or the court would or wouldn't ultimately support them. But they're not they're not uh, undermined. I think none of the things I just said, I think is undermined by Eric's argument. I just want to clarify that. And I think he, I think he expressly indicated that he's nodding here. Yeah. Okay. So then what is, what is the possible, um, nub of disagreement then? Well, it's the pos, it's a specific avenue of gradualism that Eric is kind of suggesting is blocked off. And the specific avenue of gradualism is the idea of, of this creative reading of precedent that would not, that would reach the merits. So it doesn't dismiss the case or reargue the case. So it's not taking that path. So it reaches the merits, but it also doesn't expressly overrule anything, even in part. And uh, I think that Eric's argument on this on this point, the argument that he takes up in his paper, is um, is is very strong. And it's also illuminating in ways because it picks up on features of the case reasoning that I think are underappreciated, or at least were underappreciated by me before I read the article. Uh, and I'm going to talk about at least one of those in a moment. And so I think that I think that where the article uh, takes takes issue with. Uh, Graduals, uh, uh, proponents pr- of pr- gradualism, I think the article is quite is quite uh, uh, persuasive. Now, having said that, I do have a, at least two kinds of question uh, internal to Eric's argument um, that, that that maybe point to residual uncertainties, or maybe points for Eric to uh, elaborate, and for us also to learn things about press in general, not just in connection with us. So, the first one is that Eric's argument assumes a certain model of precedent, and he he alluded to that in his presentation. He draws in this this British scholar from the early twentieth century. And uh, it's the, the kind of the ratio model of precedent where you look to the reasoning the court gives that was supportive of the judgment, roughly. Uh, and that's definitely a major model of circuitesis. I'm I'm not denying that. And and Eric is also quite right that the Supreme Court at least sometimes has seemingly endorsed that model. So that's a that's a that's a strong foundation for Eric to proceed from. But that's not the only model of circuitesis that's available. And so another potential model of circuitesis that also has a lot of support in history and and I, I would also say in the court's uh, case law, may, may, maybe not as much, but maybe I'm not sure. I'd think about that but the another possible model is a more results based model where what you really care is is what controversy was decided or maybe what the judgment was and that's the focus of attention and the reasoning the court gives is kind of less important it's it's illuminating but it's illuminating as evidence not not as not, not it's not illuminating the way that a statutory text is illuminating it's illuminating the way that evidence of a decision is illuminating about the wisdom of the decision and if you have that more results based approach then parsing the language of the of the Opinions is less important than looking at the constellation or pattern of outcomes over many years that the court is, has decided, and and again, I think that that's very consistent with uh, almost an older, more common law picture of precedent. Uh, I think it was more salient in, in the, the 18th century, for example, than it is today, but it's still around today. Uh, and so, if you if you dot this other first step, different from Eric's first step, then I think the the, the natural next thought is, well, has the Supreme Court adjudicated? An abortion claim that involves a statute like the one in DOPS. And, uh, and Eric here, this is one way that Eric's paper, I think, is, is, is just analytically illuminating. Uh, Eric suggested the way to code this statute, I think, is that it is a broad-based prohibition. I think it's his term. It's not, it's not, yeah, it's not an incidental, uh, regulation of, of access to abortion. It's a so-called broad-based prohibition. But on the, that's on the one hand, it's like emphasizing its breadth. But on the other hand, it's not as broad, for example, as the one in Roe. It's it's limited to a certain number of weeks. And so, that combination, which I think is a combination that Eric identifies as, as a possibility through his discussion of the cases, strikes me as as distinctive and possibly even unique in the court's precedents. Now, I, I, maybe I'm wrong about that. I'd be curious to hear Eric's view on that premise or suggestion I have, that it's, it's at least unusual, it's not unique, but to the extent it is unusual or unique, that would seem to undermine the worry that you have to overrule precedent. Because what it would suggest is if you adopt this other model of precedent, uh, and you also view this fact pattern as kind of distinctive, uh, or at least partially distinctive, then maybe the the decisis argument against creativity is is weakened or even or even evaded. Okay, so that's that's my my first big uh, question about this. And I, I, yeah, so that's my first one. So the second. Uh, and, and I guess my last big question has to do with what I view as, as the, probably the biggest contribution, uh, contribution of Eric's paper, which is to center the concept of overbreath in discussions about decisis in general, but especially in this series of cases. I, I'm not really sure of any other work. Uh, does that uh, nearly as carefully as, as this paper does. Overbreath plays a big role uh, in Eric's argument, and, and and rightly so, because it plays a big role in the, in the cases. And one one reaction I have about that is, if if Eric is right about this, uh, as I, I think he probably is, uh, indeed he persuades me he is about this point, does that suggest yet another plausible way of achieving gradualism in the case? So so if the court were willing to do some some partial overruling or limited overruling in this area, um, this is a possibility that obviously, I guess, as I think we all agree, Eric does not directly uh, deny in his or even you know, attempt to refute in his, in his project. But if, if some partial overruling were on the table, could one avenue be to partially overrule specifically these cases on the topic of overbreath? In other words, on who can challenge what statute and get what kind of relief? And if that were possible, then the court, it would seem to me, could uh, reject the challenge here in the Mississippi case, which is a facial challenge, a blow as a facial challenge, and reject that challenge without saying anything, actually, about the content of any individual person's abortion rights at all. Now, it wouldn't, nece- it wouldn't be ratifying the existing precedent on those abortion rights. It wouldn't be further entrenching it, but it also wouldn't be undermining. It would be leaving the abortion right question as it was before, and only changing this issue of who can consume what relief they can get. Now, I'm, I'm a proceduralist, as I've said, the issue of who can consume what relief they can get is hugely important. I'm not trying to say it's, it's unimportant in any way, it's extremely important, as Eric's argument shows, but it would be it'd be an alternative to speaking directly to the topic of uh, the content of the right. And so that'd be a way to, to defer that question for a later time. And I'll, I'll even add that some of Eric's arguments, I think don't just raise this, this Partial overrule on overbreath as an option. I think they actually support the the plausibility of it because he he points out, and, and this is possibly what the chief was getting at too. In those oral argument questions you are talking about, Eric and the chief justice are pointing out that the overbreath part of uh, more Eric than the chief, but both of them are pointing out that the overbreath argument. In Roe itself was extremely undeveloped uh, by the court, even, and maybe they kind of stumbled into it a little bit and hadn't fully thought it through. And Justice Thomas recently has been casting doubt on this overbreath logic, as Eric points out. So, so that's the second question for me: is the, is there kind of an, an ancillary implication of Eric's argument that there is actually a new off rant that hadn't been fully appreciated, though it does appear briefly in Mississippi's brief in the Supreme Court, I think very briefly, but maybe maybe Eric suggests that that off ramp should be developed and interrogated a lot more carefully. So thank you very much for including me. Again, I've learned a lot from this I hope i made it clear through my comments and I would uh, love to learn more from additional remarks from Eric and any of your questions. Thank you.
1: Nick, I'm gonna say like, I'll try to keep myself to like a minute in response to Richard. Richard, thank you very much. That was very thoughtful. We do have some disagreements, but that's to be expected. And and uh, a lot of the things you said, I think, are excellent. Uh, I, I just want to say two quick responses to two questions you asked. So on Richard's second question, might another way to decide uh, Dobbs be to say, let's overrule the overbred doctrine or let's overrule the overbred doctrine in abortion cases? Yeah, I think that's a, a, a promising a, a fruitful way, uh, partial overruling. And I think that would make like, uh, would, would minimize or tamp down the stakes very much. I agree with all that. Uh, and then on your other question on a kind of like the the the, the results based or the point based model of precedence, uh, I, I, I will, I, I can elaborate more on question and answer. I agree with you that the the law in Mississippi, the Gestational Age Act is a narrower law. It's not as prohibitory or not as broad a prohibition as you saw in Roe. But what you then have to do using, like if you have that as one point on the board, you'd have to put on points on the board all the cases where the court struck down laws saying that the abortion needs to be provided by by somebody who's certified by a licensing board. Or, uh, like there's a case that barred abortions by the uh, salient amniocentesis method in the second trimester. And then uh, the, the parentals were consent requirements, informed consent requirement cases, hospital requirement cases. So if there's a lot of other cases where the court struck down putative incidental regulations of abortion saying they interfered with the right too much, those interfered with the right less than the Mississippi statute did. And so if this case is in between Roe on one side and those other cases on the other side, but those other, in those other cases, the courts struck down putative incidental regulations that were not as restrictive of the right to choose as the law on Dobbs, then I think a fortiori the case that the, the, the law on Dobbs should go down too. And with that, I'm very much looking forward to hearing what our questioners in the audience have to say.
0: Great. Well, we have uh, a couple questions in the chat. Please, a reminder to the audience: send your questions via chat, and we will take them now. So we've got a question that says: two are kind of the same. They're about a standard, basically, for life. Assuming the court does not overrule overrule Roe, but the court overrule takes out the viability standard, what replaces it?
1: Uh, I'll take the, I guess, Richard, why don't we, I'll, I'll keep trying the first stab, and then you you add what you see fit. Uh, so it, uh, it a Steven Starr's question, assuming the court does not overrule Roe, uh, then what, repli- uh, the, the court does not overrule Roe, but the court overrules the, the viability standard. I, I guess I, uh, here I think the, the, the uh, and here the, the, my article goes into this and it brings together portions of the uh, oral argument that explain this. At oral argument, Chief Justice Roberts read Roe and Casey saying both of them ground the right to choose in liberty and the due process clause. And liberty can be understood as autonomy. And for a woman to have meaningful autonomy, then a woman needs to have, key words here, a fair opportunity to get an abortion. And so what the Chief Justice was was, was hinting at was that Roe and Casey can be recast to, uh, to 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 entitle women not to a right to choose up to the point of viability, but instead a meaningful or a fair opportunity to elect abortion. And what does that mean in practice? Some amount of time that seems long if the women's got a fair chance to abort before the the, the fetus is so far developed that that uh, state interest and in fetal life take over.
2: Uh, yeah, so I, I think that uh I think Eric's uh nomination for what, what could happen, I think uh in 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 lieu of the viability standard is certainly plausible. I think it is probably the leading thing that the chief was floating as as Eric suggested. Uh I, I'm not sure that that's that that's um the only uh candidate on offer by any means though. So one other possibility uh if viability were uh, were altered. Could you could just say you know the the standard of viability was is really a time rule. I mean you know it, it could be reduced it could translate it reduced into a number of weeks, and we pick that and the court could say we pick that time rule uh, because we balance competing interests, which they expressly said, and we're going to rebalance those interests and come up with a new time rule today, and uh, and I think they could do that without saying that the new time rule is ultimately correct because they could say well even if we take certain things for granted in these prior opinions about. You know, the fact that there are these interests and the fact that we have to weigh them, even if we assume that, we we rebalance them in a way so that at most they come out to fifteen weeks or something like that. Then we'll reserve for later whether we have to rebalance them even further or or just abandon this balancing inquiry uh, altogether. And I, so I think that I think that's a, that's an example of another uh, another candidate that would that would come closer to being um, that would come closer to saying this these facts this statute uh, is okay. Um, but others are not, and so I th- yeah. So I think that's that's an example of another option.
1: So Amy Joe Conroy asks, do I predict that the court will settle settle on a standard of life beginning at conception? Uh, on that, I think my answer is uh, under all the uh, likely outcomes I can imagine, no. Like if the, like if the court were to flat out overrule Kirk Rowan Casey, what it is overwhelming? It is overwhelmingly likely the court would then say well, we use different levels of scrutiny to protect different constitutional rights. And when we think that some right is not something that that's kind of a core right or something that's embedded in the nation's text, in the traditions and history that we associate with due process, we use this standard called rational basis scrutiny. And rational basis is a very, it's a standard review, very deferential to state interests. So if the court overrules Roe and Casey, I think it likely the court would then say, uh, uh, we federal courts must now going forward review state restrictions on abortions under a rational basis regime and rational basis then would say we if a state wants to say that life begins at conception we defer to that state's judgment if there's a rational basis for saying so but that uh the, the court doesn't have to say anything about the whether life begins at conception to make that move about rational basis
2: i see uh Kurt Lash, uh, uh, hi, Kurt. I see you have a, an interesting question here. I, I'm happy for you to take a crack at it first, Eric, but I, I, have, I have a reaction to it. Go so for it.
1: I have a reaction yeah. too, but you should go first. No, no, please, please you go first. So Kurt asks, uh, do either of us believe the past and recent public criticism of Chief Justice Roberts' less than convincing interpretation? These are Kurt's words. And the growing sense he no longer leads a conservative bloc will affect his approach in Dobbs. I would like, those of you who know the old Star Trek, know Bones McCoy would say, Damn it, Jim! I'm a doctor, not blank. Uh, so damn it, Kirsch, uh, Kurt! I'm a lawyer, not a psychologist. Um, so I, I, I like, uh, <laughs> I guess I wouldn't have written this article and given this web as if I weren't worried that there's a possibility that that. that uh, so, so uh, I guess to give some context here, Kurt mentioned Sebelius in his question. So N F I B versus Sebelius. Uh, some re- some audience members will know this, but not everybody will. About a decade ago, the Supreme Court had a challenge under the uh, Commerce Clause of the Constitution to the mandate to buy health insurance in the uh, Patient Protection Affordable Care Act. And four justices held that the substandard uh, cases from the New Deal about the Commerce Clause made a constitution for Congress to mandate that people buy health insurance, even if they did not want it. Four justices said that, that, that the mandate went far beyond any other previous case about the Commerce Clause and was unconstitutional. Chief Justice Rehnquist Re- Re- was with the, the four who said that the mandate went beyond the Commerce Clause, but said it was a tax. And lots of commentators, myself included, thought this was a dodge and, in Kurt's words, was a less than convincing interpretation. And uh, so, uh, so it is, so that, like, uh, I don't know what, the, like, the fact that he, uh, he did so, uh, like, makes me worried that, like, I, I find his recasting of Roe and, and Casey not persuasive, and the article was meant to explain to the chief, uh, based on other fine opinions the chief has written, he'll be living up to the better parts of his legacy if he comes out and says that if Roe is good law, the gestational age act is unconstitutional, and then he decides, if I'm going to reaffirm Roe or overrule it. Like, I think that's more consistent with the best of the chief's work. Um, what is he going to do? I don't know. It could. Be. It's now the case he's no longer the pivotal vote, it could be on this case. It could be that Justices Barrett and Kavanaugh and Gorsuch provide the, th- the third, the fourth, and the vi- fifth votes to overrule Roe. But it could be that uh, Justice Kavanaugh, uh, Justice Gorsuch in the Bostock case surprised a lot of commentators in a, a whole, construing the Civil Rights Act uh, uh, to protect uh, people, of homosexual, protect homosexuals. And, uh, there are, uh, and Barrett and Kavanaugh have been on the court so little, we don't know what they're going to do. And we don't like of the chief justice, if he's more of a strategic thinker, maybe he votes with the majority. If there's five votes over row, maybe he joins them to control the opinion. Um, but, um, and if uh, but if they fracture, maybe he still goes with, with Alito and Thomas. Maybe he goes with the others. I just don't know.
2: Uh, yeah, I'll just add. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I agree. I, I'm, I, I agree with the McCoy quote. I mean, I'm not a mind reader here, uh, but I'm maybe really more comfortable uh, acting like one on a podcast or whatever this is. I think that that the question is interesting in part because it 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 reveals a kind of tension in how the chief acts as as chief justice, and I, I see that in a non critical way. I'm just trying to describe it. I actually maybe maybe uh, desirable, but in one sense, he is a as as, as writes, a leader of the conservatives and a formalist. And then, but in another part of him uh, is, is the leader of the court and an institutionalist gradualist and therefore a little bit pragmatic. And and there are times when he fronts different at you know one or the other uh, at different times, and I think people who are in the first camp, in other words, who are conservative and or formalists, sometimes view his his forays into the other area as kind of embarrassments or, or undermining him in some way. But it's not at all obvious to me that he either does or should view it that way. He could he could very plausibly think I, I believe that 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 these gradualist institutionalists somewhat pragmatic impulses are totally legitimate and part of his identity and part of his institutional role as chief justice. And as long as he hasn't lose tie to his formalism entirely, he can balance them in ways that maybe will be uh, will be principled. And I I, I think it's hard to look back at his tenure so far and and see any, any desire to decisively pick either of those two roles for himself. So I, I think, from what we can tell, I think he's still comfortable with the tension being unresolved. But that's just, this is my, you know, that's my arm shared guess.
1: One, one other thought on this, like, I, it's hard to predict what Chief Justice Roberts would do because this case kind of pulls at a couple of attachments that he seems to have from past cases. He is a minimalist and one minimalist way to, just, dis- but it's not clear what minimalism uh, requires in this case. One minimalist strategy is to say, let's get the federal courts out of heightened scrutiny of state abortion restrictions. We keep the, 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 the a minimal role is for courts just to not be in this game at all. But another minimal role is don't make major changes to old cases and to sense overrule a, a case that is as well known and has had been applied as many times as Roe v. Wade. That seems in some sense aggressive. So he is a minimalist. Uh, but different species of minimalism might pull in different directions depending on what you focus on, whether it's keep, like it's stopping courts from striking down statutes or stopping courts now from making major changes to earlier doctrines. Um, Jeffrey Wood asks much of the legal critique of Roe seems to focus on its original constitutional baselessness and uh, trying to narrow the holding of a baseless precedent doesn't seem relevant or helpful. How do the panelists respond? Uh, first, uh, Jeff and I served together on the Environmental and Property Rights Practice Group. Hi, Jeff, good to uh, hear from you. Uh, second, my article covers this, and uh, part nine, the conclusion covers this most. So uh, here, from my talk, remember the point I made about bananas and recessions, or using the word holding in a sense that's idiosyncratic. So if one thinks that a court you, like it, 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 devel- it develops a meaning of holding that is not consistent with an important understandings of holdings that the court has relied on in cases like Seminole Tribe and, 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 and Cohen's. Assume that for a minute. Then if you're doing so, so stereo decisis analysis of, of Roe, then what you could say is, okay, so Roe, like Roe's now been read a little bit differently in the Dobbs case. So now what we have is, so we're doing stereo decisis analysis. We'll look at whether the early decision was egregiously wrong or not and we'll also look at whether there's consistent reasoning in this field of law. So then argue, uh, a critic of Roe could say it was it was egregiously wrong, wrong with decided, the premise of just question. And then the court in a later case to salvage some of Roe, it made Roe hold something it did not hold and it warped or bent the law like the law of holdings to do so. Since consistency uh, matters a lot to decide whether overrule, since the court has to be inconsistent in what the abortion right is, and it needs to be inconsistent in the law of holdings, that's some evidence that further evidence should be overruled. In a recent case, uh, June Medical Services uh, versus Russo, Justice Borsuch wrote a long dissent, and the dissent was documenting what uh, Josh Blackman and others like to call the abortion distortion. In many fields of law, like free speech law, and then in the June case, and, uh, 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 or sorry, in the uh, the, the Hellerstedt case, uh, the law about race judicata, uh, like otherwise general principles of law seem to be applied a little bit differently when they apply to abortion rights. I clerked a long time ago for Chief Justice William Rehnquist. He did not like to take certiorari in a case when the merits of if it was on some topic and abortion rights are the substantive merits under the case but the case itself was on a different topic and in Remquist's view was there was just too much of a risk that a couple of his colleagues might decide the merits issue that did not have to do with abortion a procedural issue or a free speech issue differently because the merits were on abortion and that's a, that's a noticeable phenomenon so you take that all together a later court then might say well dobbs said that roe didn't hold what it seemed to hold but Dobbs now was egregiously wrong because it bent the principles of precedence. And so I don't have to follow Dobbs and, uh, and as justice, I don't have to follow Roe and they both should be overruled. And I think that the, like the, 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 uh, moves being made. So in, at the, in the, uh, there's one point in part nine, I, I point back to a couple of opinions where a justice has said, there's a, some case that's so wrong. I'm not going to follow it ever going forward. And I like the two recent examples After Seminole Tribe was handed down for about a decade, the more progressive members of the Supreme Court said as soon as Seminole Tribe and uh, cases after can be overruled, they should be. We refuse to give them any presidential effect, even though they've been decided. In a case about the Miranda rule called Dickerson, Justice Scalia and Justice Thomas said we are not we are going to continue to uh, ignore uh, Miranda going forward because there's a state because it clearly did not hold the Miranda warnings. And there's this Congress that over, overruled some specific parts of, of Miranda that were prophylactic and Scalia and, and Thomas were convinced that the statute by Congress was the law and Miranda's wasn't. Those are aggressive moves by courts to say this particular decision does not have the dignity of law. But move, but, but say, and I, I suggest, suggest that to whatever rule of precedent one runs with saying that Roe doesn't hold what I argued it holds is a major enough departure from the rule of precedent. It wouldn't be out of line. A court wouldn't be going rogue or being really confrontational to say that, that, that like a recast of, of Roe is like what the progressives thought Seminole Tribe was or what what the Splee and Thomas thought Dickerson
2: was. Um, I'll just say, say very briefly um, uh, to the uh, Jeffrey Woods' comment. So I, I think the question to be um, if the precedent is baseless it's not helpful to narrow it, I, t- I take to be the challenge. And I, if, if framed that way, which I think is, is a fair representation of the question, I can, I can think of two possible pushbacks that, that are, you know are, are, I'm trying to channel through a lot of my comments. So one of them is that if, if you think it's baseless, uh, and you're a judge you should really still do a lot of process to double check your intuitions and possible biases about that and that that kind of goes to my points to how there's not proper deliberation or briefing or presentation on uh, a lot of key issues to, to my mind so even if you think it's if you think you're confident you maybe you should triple check your confidence by following the right procedures that's kinda, in many contexts judges Acknowledge, and all the justices would acknowledge that but you don't want to leap to a conclusion just because it feels right in the, in the instant. But then the, se- the second reaction though, is even if um, you are really, really sure and you know, there's no bias or lack of understanding on your part, and this is just a wrong precedent. Even then you've got to think about this reliance consideration. And I think that that helps explain a lot of the gradualism that we see uh, when the court wants to make a big pivot. And, um, and you, know, I will say that to some extent, even the oral argument in Dobbs, uh, to some extent, the court's treatment of SB8 in Texas has helped give notice and has already perhaps gone some way to reducing reliance costs to a big overruling. Uh, and I guess my my reaction would be that it, 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 the court has not done the kind of notice and gradualism for such a big thing that it's done in the past, even now. And and so while there may be mitigation on this score, there's, there's room for more mitigation. Um, and so I think that's a second reason that at least has to be considered for um, for narrowing even a even a decision, that you're hundred thousand percent sure is baseless. You always have to consider this reliance point. Uh,
1: so I was I apologize to Nick. I was looking at the questions in the question and answer, and Nick told people to go to the chat. So now I've gone to the chat. Uh, Stephen Schaefer asks for someone who wants to learn more about the factors the court has relied on for considering precedent, uh, which case or cases should one read? Uh, that's it's a good question, and my article I don't have a good answer to that. Like that the, the uh, the court, like uh, what I used to tell you, say in the articles, the court much more often, it assumes an understanding of holdings and precedent and dicta than it sets one forth elaborately. Uh, the, the, there's a paragraph in the seminal Tri-Case that just sets forth a distinction, assumes that readers know what it is. But the court, even that's not terribly systematic. And I'm not, after my research, like I'm not aware of such a systematic treatment by the court. Um, so then I think one has, uh, I guess... The places that I go would be uh, for uh, like an old historical treatment, uh, the, 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 the salmon treatise that I mentioned, but then another, uh, th- there's a book by Brian Garner and several distinguished federal judges, um, uh, and, and it's cited in my article, like uh, do a control effort for Garner, and that work ha- like gives you what a lot of appeals judges use to talk about precedence, and that's probably the health- most helpful place I'd go to. Um, if you don't have any comments on that, Richard, I'm gonna go to Justin Janke. What is the central holding of Roe, the proponents of affirming Roe are talking about? So the phrase central holding, it comes from the Casey case. And Casey talked about the central holding of Roe having three parts. And uh, I'll I'll be looking for that as as I'm talking. I would say the central holdings of, of Roe is two central holdings. One is that there exists this prima facie right of a woman who's pregnant to choose abortion and the second is that before viability the state may not impose uh, inappropriate restrictions and it is always inappropriate for state to flat out ban abortions before viability if the state is instituting an institution like an incidental regulation of of abortion before viability if the if the law seems uh, appropriate like it's protecting women's health it's protecting the uh, interest of parents in regulating a minor's choice to get an abortion, and it seems narrow enough, that's fine. But if it's not that kind of incidental regulation, then the core holding of Roe is that uh, an unjustified regulation of abortion or an unjustified interference with abortion before uh, the viability threshold is unconstitutional. Um, and I'm still looking, there's a passage from Casey that I, I haven't found yet. Uh, okay, so here it is. This is a uh, 505 U.S. 846 The essential holding of row is three parts. First is recognition of the right of a woman to choose to have an abortion before viability. Second is a confirmation of the state's power to restrict abortions after fetal viability. if The law contains exceptions that are for pregnancies endangering the woman's life or health. And third is the principle that the state has legitimate interest from the outset of pregnancy in protecting the health of the woman, the life of the fetus that may become a child. Can I jump in, Eric? Yeah, please do.
2: Yeah, I see a comment from uh, Justin is directed uh, to me. I take it that the point is, is incrementalism in the face of egregiously wrong precedent corrupting or or wrongful if motivated or to extent motivated by a desire for the justice to promote his or her reputation, I think? And I think this is a really interesting question. I, I think many people take the view that, and this kind of goes back to Kurt's question before, to some extent, if a justice is... Is considering the reputation of being kind of vain and distorting the law for their own self-interest, and there's definitely a, a scenarios where where that critique I think would be very sharp and very very compelling. I, I do I do hesitate to accept this this challenge fully though, because if you think about it, a lot of the things that people do in general are in, to some extent of considering how other people will view them, and so the idea of, of a justice's reputation. To some extent, is like a is like an avatar or or, or a, um, a heuristic for whether they're doing the right thing, and and so so what reputation means and how reputation is being used, I guess, needs to be kind of pinned down and 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 thought through. Um, so so like for example, if someone's thinking about their reputation in terms of how. History, the judgment of history, will look at some something. Then you you might think that that is a you know a vain desire to be in, in in books and have your name repeated or whatever, and and that'll lead you astray. Or you might think that that's a that's a heuristic for thinking about what's really true about the law, what's really true about the Constitution, and and a way to get away from momentary biases like what will make me popular today, what will get me invited to nice dinners and banquets and things. And and the historical view of reputation could be a way to abstract away from those things that are actually. The true corrupting influences on the justice's judgment. So I, I haven't I haven't completely rejected the the challenge, but but I think it's more complicated maybe than the challenge um that's on.
1: I want to jump in here. I agree with a lot of Richard said, and uh, I want to just offer some thoughts about the way the law deals with this. If you look at the law, the law it's very, very rare for the law to to focus on somebody's motivations. It's much more common for the law to look at a person's act and see whether the act, ju- like, interferes with someone else's right on objective grounds, whether there's justification to inter- interfere with that right. So, um, uh, Re- Richard and I both are remedies scholars as well as other things we do, and so I'm just going to run with remedies doctrine. So, there's a very, very narrow class of cases in which a court will use this idea of abuse of right and say. This person, over the person, one of the litigants, the only motivation we can imagine that the for the person to do what he's doing is to spite or to to, like to interfere with the law legitimate rights of the other party, and so we're going to say even though this person had a a right at law to do something, we're not going to protect that right with the full range of remedies that we would normally protect it with because the person's acting maliciously. That doctrine exists, but it's very very narrow, and. It is so because in law, it's very important that rights be reasonably clear and justifications for actions be reasonably clear. And to, uh, to make law the, 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 uh, the, the rights and the justifications that's stable and clear, you have to abstract away from what the actual subjective motivations that motivate people to exercise the rights to claim justification most of the time. And so, in, uh, and I guess there's a parallel to that in, in argument Ordinary civilian argument, it's much better to take the consider the objective grounds or arguments somebody relies on to defend what someone wants to do and to back away from trying to attribute to the person sneaky, suspicious motivations like vanity, a desire for flattery, a desire for reputation. And so for the Chief Justice, uh, for example, it's like, like uh, if he's making arguments, considering doing uh, like a re- reading row in a certain way. I think the better course of action is to take those arguments as face value and consider this as a justice who's trying to consider all the all the possible ways to decide a case. As Richard mentioned in his uh, opening comments, uh, like the litigants took an all or nothing position before the Supreme Court in this case. It's reasonable for like it's reasonable to be it's charitable to the Supreme the ju- Chief Justice to say maybe he's looking for some way that the ideological litigants weren't weren't uh, didn't give him. And not to say, oh, he's just trying to avoid getting criticized by the New York Times or by Linda Greenhouse or by the Conlaw law faculty at Harvard Law School.
0: Great. Well, we we are out of time. But if the speakers have a couple more minutes, maybe we can take a couple more questions. What do you think? I can do a couple more. Yeah. Great. Um, let's see. Tom, Tom uh,
1: Ludden asks, uh, stare decisis only applies in the majority of the court with the ability to overturn press and does not strongly agree, disagree with that precedent. Do we have any reason to believe that a judge or justice who has the ability to overrule uh, failed to overrule a precedent with which the judge or justice strongly dece- dis- disagreed because of uh, starry decisis? It's a good question. And I, 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 don't, uh, I think that um, at the end of the day, if justices are, con- are strongly convinced that a decision is egregiously wrong, starry decisis will not get in the right way. I get that. I I think that there are lots of examples in relatively low stake decisions where courts accept stare decisis. When I clerked for Chief Justice Rehnquist, there was a line of cases about the Dormant Commerce Clause and state tax powers, and Rehnquist had voted against extending this, uh, applying the Dormant Commerce Clause doctrine to state taxes um, in a lot bunch of cases, but he made me write a first draft opinion. He finished the opinion off just saying, too much waters under the dam. Now these tax cases are what they are, and I join it. Um, so everybody, I think, agrees in in low stakes cases, stare decisis and reliance count. And where the case is re- egregiously wrong and it's important, I'm not bound by stare decisis. And then different justices in good faith like dr- like draw the line between those two paradigms differently.
2: Yeah, I really like the discussion. I mean, I think a lot of what Eric said there um, harmonizes with my suggestion that precedent often operates as a permission. That you, that The justice can be confident to, that they can lawfully do something, but it doesn't bind them to do it. I will say a kind of in-between um, option here is even in the high-stakes cases, this pattern of gradualism in the Roberts court that I keep talking about, that could be viewed as a way for precedent to matter without being strictly or absolutely binding, because in, in a lot of these cases, you see these gradual chipping aways, and then the hammer falls. And one possibility is that the buses weren't sure, weren't sure, okay, they became sure. It became more salient in a way to them. But another possibility is they were always pretty sure, but President kind of held them back for a while. And I think even even if that's all the precedent does in high salience cases, which I, I'm not even sure that that's the right way to view it, but even if that's the right way to view it, it's it's kind of an, a, a speed bump. I think in, in my in one of the papers I said it could be a precedent as a speed bump. Uh, that still could that could still be quite important. I
1: guess I have one more thought, Nick, and I, maybe this is a good closing thought. We're talking about over, uh, courts overruling past doctrines. And that's a treacherous area of law because courts are supposed to apply law, not make law. And so, if a court, if an old doctrine's law, then what gives the court authority to go back and change the doctrine? And the court's got to be saying this doctrine is an application of some more basic law, and it's a it's a bad application of that doctrine. But someone else might say, no, you just make a new law. And there are very important concerns about legitimacy that come up when courts are making new laws. And the Chief Justice's memorable phrase: "Courts are supposed; judges must be umpires. They're not supposed to be somebody you go to watch yourself. They're not the players in the ball game, and nobody ever went to see went to a ball game to see an umpire." And so there needs that that is, that's not going to stop judges from sincerely thinking. I think some earlier decision was grossly wrong, and it's out of alignment with the law that gives me the authority to decide these kinds of cases. But what, it d- at a minimum, then, there needs to be some way for judges and lawyers to focus in a constructive way serious disagreement about what the law is, what the fundamental law is, and whether, the, the, like a some line of cases, is, is consistent with the fundamental law. And... Both the stare decisis doctrine and the law of precedent that Richard and I have been talking about are attempts to provide infrastructure to work out this this problem. So one thing to do is to say, we're not always gonna agree what an earlier case held, but at least there's some generally accepted criteria that we can settle on. Courts clearly have the power to render judgments uh, in the course of exercising their powers, and courts can render opinion to explain why they, they decided what they decided, and it seems a fair and objective criterion that, that sets up reason argument to ask, does a certain passage from a case seem crucial to the judgment handed down in this case as in other cases relying on it? And that's what the law of precedence does. So courts can then argue what an old precedent held, but at least they can bracket the argument of what it held, relying on the ratio, a uh, uh, dictum distinction. And then the rule of stare decisis, the, the 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 principles of stare decisis—they're they're a balancing test. They're certainly not exhaustive, but they give lawyers and, and and judges a commonly shared objective set of criterion they can use to bracket and focus the disagreement. Whether some old doctrine seems to be bad law, asking things like, does it seem egregiously wrong applying the Constitution or or the common law or whatever else it's supposed to be applying, and does it do it like a like a has it built up reliance interests. Uh, and then the other relevant factors so do these do these uh do these eliminate disagreements no but do they help uh, do, do they help us like focuses disagreements yes and they can help us express or articulate into intuitive, intuitive judgments we have that something seems really wrong and like a psychologically, it's a good thing if people just aren't angry because they feel like a fashion one was pulled over by an official. It's better if there's a, a there's a vocabulary in the law to express the criticism. And I think that a civil discourse becomes to be more civil and less controversial if people are arguing in frameworks like this. And so part of what I'm trying to do with this argument is to say, there, I think there are people out there who think that it really would be a fast one to say Roe didn't hold what judges have been thinking it held for 50 years, and I'm trying to give people the legal vocabulary to ask whether that, that does seem like an aggressive move or not. But again, uh, thank you for great commentary with Rick uh, from Richard. And thank you to Nick for and to
2: the Federalist Society for putting this on. Many thanks to, to you, Eric, and to all the, all the comments and thoughts. It's been a lot of fun. And again, I, I really got a lot out of it myself.
0: Yeah, thank you all. Uh, on behalf of the Federalist Society, I want to extend our thanks to our speakers. Thanks for taking uh, time out of your schedule, your busy schedules, um, and discussing this important issue with us today. Thanks also to our audience for calling in. Uh, your great questions, there was really great engagement. Sorry that uh, we didn't get to all of the questions, but we we, we tried in earnest. And uh, please keep an eye on your email and our website for announcements about upcoming events uh, like this one, and maybe we'll have to do another. But until that next event, we are adjourned. Thank you for listening to this episode of Teleform, a podcast of the Federalist Society's practice groups. For more information about the Federalist Society, the practice groups, and to become a Federalist Society member, please visit our website at fedsoc.org.